Okay, in England, I think we call that an inimitable introduction. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in what we're doing in Oxford, so Be Less is our thing. Um, we actually have an event this evening at 6 p.m. at Dan and Faith Banning's house. Um, if you want info on that, these little cards are on the tables and I'll stick them down here on the stage. So, um, we're going to be jumping into the first of these uh, sermons for the summer series uh, this morning. And yeah, hopefully this is going to be um, a helpful introduction to thinking about spiritual practices. It's going to be a little bit rogue, um, but I think spiritual practices need to come with a bit of a health warning, don't they? It's easy to think that by these things that we do, we're in some way drawing God close to us. But as was said so helpfully from the front just now, that's not actually the story of God that's revealed in our Bible. It's so distinctive, isn't it? It's the heart of the Christian message that God moves towards us. And we're going to go after a passage this morning, which is super familiar, I think, probably to almost everyone in this room, which is often used as a way to make it sound like we need to draw God to us. Um, and I want to try and tear that up a little bit. Um, so uh, let's pray, um, and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning. Thank you for the blessing of worshiping you as your people and we do lift our voices to you in praise. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us and for the amazing way that you have moved from heaven to earth. It's not just this kind of massive category distinction between the amazing, transcendent, omnipotent, eternal God coming and making home with ordinary, temporal uh, human beings, men and women like us, but that we had actually turned our backs on you. We had said we don't want to know, and yet you came um, and came to the very worst that our world had to offer uh, in order to rescue us and redeem us. We're so thankful, and we pray that you'd help us to respond. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to read your words aright. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit to turn our hearts to you, open our eyes to see you more clearly. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before we get to our Bible passage this morning, I just want to do a little bit of a kind of preparatory exercise with you, if that's okay. So I want to just ask you to think about where your hope has been placed this week. And I want this to be kind of practical. So uh, yeah, if it helps to close your eyes or it helps to get out a piece of paper and write something down, then, then do do that. We're going to come back to this as we go through our message this morning. But I just want you to think, like, what, what are the thoughts that drove you forward? What were the things, the goals that kind of motivated you? Uh, the, the things that you uh, long to see come to pass, the things that were out there, that if only they would have happened, it would have made it a great week. Or maybe if that wasn't you, maybe if you struggled to find hope this week, what, what, what was the thing that was absent? Where are hopes placed? Or where have they been placed? And where have we been disappointed? So just give that some thought. So before I came out here this time, I read an interesting article in Great Britain. Um, uh, that question, where have your hopes been placed this week, is put in a survey to people. Um, and the answers that people give to that has been changing over time. Uh, shifting, I guess, from uh, more corporate, social hopes to more individualistic hopes as the decades go by. And I wonder whether the same thing is true here in the States. So people used to answer this question 50, 70 years ago with uh, uh, answers like, I'm hoping for an end to apartheid. I'm hoping for nuclear disarmament. I'm hoping for equal opportunities. But now people answer these questions in very different ways. They have smaller scale 
individualistic hopes. It's the bucket list, right? The things that I think I need to do in order to live a complete life. Personal hopes, relational hopes, career hopes. And I can see there's a good reason for that transition. Um, This is kind of personal to me. I think of my own grandfather. I I was really close to my paternal grandfather. He was born in 1901, and he was a classic example of someone who had those larger scale social concerns as the thing that really drove him. He was a child of the First World War generation, watched brothers go off to the trenches and die. Um, And out of that came a disillusionment with religion, uh, a disillusionment with uh, some of the things, some of the kind of class structures that had uh, fueled that conflict. And he came away with this sense like humanity has what it takes to better itself if only we work together. And so he hoped in international institutions, the League of Nations that turned into the UN. Uh, and that was the big thing that kind of motivated him. That's what he thought humanity should really be going for. But it was kind of uh, poignant and uh, yeah, really challenging to watch him come to the end of his life in the 1990s and see him kind of survey the scene and realize that actually that stuff that he had invested himself in and those hopes that he had attached himself to had largely collapsed. That those institutions, though they still existed, had not delivered the war-free future that he had hoped for. And that actually it wasn't just the institutions that had failed, but nobody believed in the underlying principle anymore. This whole idea that humans, if we can only work together, can make everything right. How, How many people believe that today? So it was, yeah, kind of harrowing to watch him face that. And you can see then that, that, that the rationale for that transition from those big hopes to smaller scale ones. Because large scale hopes are transient, aren't they? Who's to say whether or not they're going to deliver in 25 years or 50 years time? But even smaller scale individualistic hopes are fragile, aren't they? And I guess many of us can testify that to that. I know that I can. You know, it's great to have those bucket list hopes when you, you're a graduate, right? You have the world at your feet. Um, you know, you're fit. You have prospects to earn money. Everything looks great. Uh, but what when the wheels come off? What if you get sick and you stay sick? What if you don't get the job that you hoped for, the relationship that you dreamed of? Sometimes those hopes can just fade away, just slipping through our fingers. So this turns out to be a really important question. Where is your hope in life? On the big scale, on the small scale? Is it going to stand the test of time? Will it deliver what it promises? These are really vital questions. And the book of the Bible we're going to go to this morning, Proverbs, is full of answers for them. And particularly the chapter that we're going to look at, which is the very last chapter of the book, Proverbs 31. It seems here that we get a picture of something that absolutely is worth aiming for. And it's captured in this female character known as the wife of noble character. She seems to present something to us which is really worthy of our aspirations. Generations of Christians have turned here to find like a pole star to follow uh, through life. And today I'm, I'm hoping to be at a show that this really does contain the answer, I think, to this question about the, where the right place is to put our hope. But I don't think it's going to be the answer we expect. <laughs> so let's go there and I'll read these familiar words. And I think it's still a custom in this church, and I love it. Let's stand to hear God's word. Proverbs chapter 31, we're going to read from verse 10 through to the end. And it goes like this. A wife of noble character who can find. 
She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elves of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all, he says. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. All right, so we're jumping in here at the end of Proverbs. Wisdom is the central theme of this book. It's one of the wisdom books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, And uh, immediately as you start to read through Proverbs, you're confronted with the fact that the proverbial picture of wisdom is not quite the picture that we think of in our culture. I don't know, we think of wisdom as something which, I don't know, correlates to intelligence or maybe correlates to age, I don't know. Um, But neither of those two things seems to be particularly prominent in the story of the Proverbs. Uh, What we find here is actually, you know, if intelligence is all about kind of self-sufficiency, you know, get tooled up with all of the uh, kind of knowledge that you need in order to make a dent in life, that's, that's not what wisdom is about in Proverbs. Proverbs is actually about recognizing our insufficiency, our inability to make the world give us what we think we want. So wisdom then in the Proverbs turns out to be a great thing to have, but it's not necessarily a comfortable process getting it. Wisdom doesn't come courting us in Proverbs. It's something we have to go get. We have to pursue it. We have to apply ourselves to it. This is something that we we have to almost kind of learn to see the appeal of. Wisdom is not something that is immediately attractive in the picture that we're given here in this book of the Bible. We have to learn how to like it. In order to be someone who is wise, you need to learn how to say yes to things that intuitively you might want to say no to. You might have to learn how to say no to things that you intuitively want to say yes to. We have to surrender ourselves to its diagnosis, to, to embrace what it is that it's saying about us and submit to its treatment, and wisdom is something for which we have to be prepared to wait. 
Even the waiting seems to be in Proverbs a lesson in wisdom. All of that is so countercultural, isn't it, in our kind of instant generation, instant gratification. That's not what's going on here in this book of the Bible. I wonder whether that's what makes Proverbs such a difficult book to read through. I, I don't know whether it's irreverent to say this, but I think Proverbs is kind of one of my least favorite books of the Bible because it's so difficult to get through it, isn't it? Anybody else feel the same? Sorry. See any guilty uh, nods? Um, but it's as if the shape of the book is kind of designed to mirror the experience that it describes, isn't it? As you read through Proverbs, you come to a section that deals with money and you think, okay, this is going to be tough. And it tells me things that I need to do, the way I need to think, the way I need to handle myself. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to process this. I'm going to work at this. I'm going to pray at it. And then you keep on reading through in your devotional time. And a couple of chapters later, it comes back to money again. It's like, what? Like, haven't we done this? Like, stop banging me over the head with this thing. But actually, isn't that what real life is like? Real life as a process of acquiring wisdom has that same character. You know, at some stage in your life, you find yourself wrestling with, yeah, money or greed or laziness or pride, and you work at it with God's help and feel like you've gained some kind of mastery over it in the moment. A couple of years later, you'll be right back in the same place. Something else will trigger the same set of lessons. So there is progress, isn't there, in our Christian lives, but often we're cycling through the same lessons again and again and again. And the book of Proverbs uh, picks up that flavor. So Proverbs reads like a kind of moral assault course. It's probing us, it's reducing us, it's kind of goading us to keep surrendering. But if we do reach the end of the book, we then reach this beautiful picture seemingly of the reward at the end of that long journey. The wife of noble character, who we just read about, seems to provide a kind of graduation portrait from that school of proverbial hard knocks, doesn't she? If we stay the course, if we keep swallowing the medicine, one day we will be like that. This idea that we can be the wife of noble character and that she serves as some kind of role model for us is certainly part of what's going on in this text, I think. The wife embodies many of the characteristics that we see spelt out earlier in the book, and I'll just give you a little bit of a guided tour. Actually, again, so this is something that was mentioned at the start, wisdom, like God himself, is proactive, and that's very striking as you go through the book of Proverbs. And it's not like wisdom's kind of e evil twin, folly, in, in Proverbs. That's uh, not proactive at all. The, the path of folly is one where things just come to you and you just grab them. Um, and I'm afraid to say, I, I don't know whether you think this, but our, our, our world reveals sometimes its folly in being exactly like that. I open up my internet browser and I get these personalized adverts starting to pop up. Based on your recent browsing behavior, I think that you might like extra bookshelves, uh, an expensive guitar. It's like, how did they know? Um, but they, they've been watching, it's been watching, hasn't it? It's come to me, it's come to find me with stuff that it thinks that I want. Well, that's, folly is like that in Proverbs. It comes at you with stuff that it thinks is gonna appeal to your appetites, but wisdom is exactly the opposite. Wisdom doesn't appeal to desires you already have. I'm really sorry about that, it's kind of bad news. It doesn't reward the person who's happy to sit still and just let the world come to them. Wisdom requires proactivity, and the wife of noble character has it in spades, doesn't she? So if you look down at the chapter, and I encourage you to keep it open, in verse 14, we find that the wife doesn't just go buying things that are right in front of her. She thinks about what's best for her family and thinks, ah, I need to go somewhere to get that. I need to bring things from afar. So off she goes and gets them. 
It's in how she manages her businesses in verse 16. She doesn't just buy the land that's there right in front of her um, or recycle it to use the stuff that she's used it for before. She thinks, huh, there's a different field. That could be a vineyard. I can imagine going into a new line here. Let's do this, let's do that, let's make things happen. It's very striking how kind of proactive this lady is. So that's characteristic of wisdom through the book and it's characteristic of this woman at the end. Wisdom is industrious. And again, this is something that's very striking in the wife of noble character. Folly is the reverse. Folly is prone to laziness. And so you get these kind of funny remarks in Proverbs, like in Proverbs 26, where it says the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and is too lazy even to bring it back to his own mouth. And hopefully we're all like, oh, ho, 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 ho. Until you realize, actually, it then goes on to say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man, and so it turns out to be very serious. The fool is lazy, but the wife of noble character isn't. Again, look down at the text in verse 15, we find that she gets up while it's still dark to provide for her family and her servants. In verse 17, she works vigorously, her arms are strong. Verse 19, she weaves. Verse 22, she sews. Verse 24, she sews such a surplus that she has things to distribute like as a kind of sideline in her business. So if laziness marks the fool, The wife of noble character couldn't be more different. But also, as we read along, I hope we're beginning to get a little bit nervous. But seriously, like, who can keep up with this lady? (laughs) So wisdom is proactive. Wisdom is industrious. Wisdom is also strongly kind of keyed to friendship in the book of Proverbs. This is a really beautiful feature of the book of Proverbs as you read through it. It has a lot to say about friendships in different categories. Friendships in the household are an important part of Proverbs' testimony, and we see that in the wife of noble character. She has these relationships with her servant girls. She doesn't just kind of know them by name. She's anticipating their needs, thinking what the path, what the next steps ahead of them might be and how to provide for them. That's great, isn't it? But also, Proverbs has a lot to say about what it calls neighbor friendship. And here the definition of neighbor is really broad. It's strikingly reminiscent of Jesus, isn't it? When we read the parable of the Good Samaritan and the broad field in which he sees neighbor. Well, it's here in uh, Proverbs as well. In verse 20 of our passage, this lady opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. She looks out beyond her immediate circle. Turns out her businesses are not just about providing resources for her and her household, but also for the wider community in which she lives. And that's a model of wisdom, according to Proverbs. See, Proverbs wants us to understand that actually disadvantage can come on anybody. Illness, bereavement, poverty, displacement, these things are part of life in a fallen world. And one of the things that people who experience those experiences most need is friends. Fools are the people who crush and exploit the needy. But the wife of noble character in our story honors God by seeing them as fellow human beings and opening herself up to them. And that's a challenge to us, isn't it? How do we do with that? What do our lives look like? What do our friendships look like? And how broadly spread are they? Something that um, Ruth, my wife, and I were just so struck by and encouraged by during the five years that we spent as members of this church, the focus of Crossroads on the street corner, on wanting to be a blessing to our neighbors, on wanting to try and figure out how we can be a blessing to local schools, how we can be a blessing to uh, children who don't have parents. Um, you know, just really striking how that embodies the kind of principles that are here. And I just, I totally commend you for that and encourage you 
along that path. Wisdom also, as we go through Proverbs, is not just proactive, it's not just industrious, it's not just about friendship, it's also about the way we speak. This is a big concern of the book as a whole. The wise person is the person who understands the power of words and um, uh, who recognizes that sometimes saying nothing is better than saying something. We struggle with this, I think, in our modern culture, don't we? In our social media age, it's so much easier to be quick to speak and slow to listen and quick to become angry. That's exactly the wrong way around, isn't it? But here in The Wife of Noble Character, we see a beautiful example of how to get it right. If you run through this chapter and wait for the moment at which she speaks, you think, this lady's so full of wisdom. First thing she's going to do is get the mic and say, okay, right, here's how I do it. Actually, if you work it through, you'll find you have to wait all the way to verse 26 before she says a thing. So follow the verbs with me. She selects, she works, she gets up, she provides, she considers, she holds the distaff, she grasps the spindle, she opens her arms to the poor, she extends her hands to the needy, she makes, she sells, she laughs at the days to come. She does all of that before she says a thing. And when she finally does talk, in verse 26, she speaks wisdom. And faithful instruction is on her tongue. So do you see, she models the guidance that this whole book is providing. She lets her actions do the talking. And when the time comes to say something, she speaks encouragement into God's way. She urges others to discover the same blessings that she herself has discovered. So it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A beautiful picture, a beautiful summary of what's happened in the book so far. But what is it for? The traditional approach to this chapter is to say that this wife is a role model for women. After 30 chapters of advice that's come from a father to a son, now we have finally something for the ladies. And there's some strength in that idea. All of us benefit from role models, don't we? Even role models that are a little bit unattainable. Um, and uh, the wife of a noble character seems to be used in that way, potentially. I don't know whether you're familiar with this, that phrase. The wife of a noble character is actually attached to Ruth in the book of Ruth. And there we see, well, you know, there it's embodied. You know, the role model worked out in the life of a real person. Well, kind of. But also, if you know anything about the book of Ruth and you see the role that she's fulfilling in that story, Ruth is far more a redeemer than she is just an ordinary uh, member of God's community. Ruth is an agent of salvation to her mother in her mother-in-law Naomi, isn't she? Ruth and Boaz together serve as redeemers, kind of ushering in the era of the kings. They're, they're much more to, to point us, I think, in the, the larger direction of the story, pointing us to the redeemer when he comes. So just be careful with this role model idea, because there are problems with it, aren't there? The wife of noble character is intimidating. She's a devoted wife and mother. Her husband and her children are always beautifully turned out and respected. She's an expert weaver and seamstress. She's an expert in land management. She's an inspiring teacher. She manages and extends several private businesses. She's an excellent interior designer, a small to medium scale investor. She directs a range of philanthropic projects. Like it's no wonder she gets up while it's still night, is it? It's no wonder she goes to sleep at all. There are other clues here. Think about verse 16. We're told that she considers a field and buys it, and out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Well, that makes a lot of sense to us, doesn't it, in our modern Western world, because we think, okay, finally, like we're getting some of our nice equality agenda that we know is kind of pregnant there in the Bible, but doesn't always make it to the surface. Well, here it is. But we've got to realize, look, 
this passage wasn't written to our modern Western world. The Bible certainly has all sorts of important things to say about the roles of women and men in society, but this is not the place to look for it. This was written 3,000 years ago to Iron Age Palestine. The only significant group of women with responsibility for their own finance at that time were widows. Nobody wanted to be one of those. Think about the vocabulary. We're told that the wife is worth far more than rubies. That's a quote. That's a quote from Proverbs 3, verse 15. It pops up again in Proverbs 8, verse 1. It's a description of wisdom itself. In verse 11, we're told that the husband has full confidence in the wife, that he lacks nothing of value. Go back through Proverbs and you'll find that vocabulary is used again and again to describe placing confidence in the wisdom of God. We're told in verse 12 that the wife brings her husband good, not harm. Those two terms are used as kind of labels to describe the two paths that the book of Proverbs lays out before us, the path of wisdom and the path of folly. The wife clearly aligned with the first one of those two paths. Verse 22, we're told that the wife is clothed in fine linen and purple. That's not just like an edgy style decision that she's making there, okay? To be clothed in purple is a mark of royalty. This is pointing to something beyond the ordinary. This is kingly. This is maybe even divine. In verse 25, we're told that the wife laughs at the days to come. Well, in the introduction to the book of Proverbs, it's wisdom that laughs at the fate of the fool who won't embrace her direction. So this is telling us something. It's striking that this also happens right at the very end of the book that we get this portrait. Because Proverbs begins like this with a potent portrait of wisdom as a woman. And when we see this kind of thing in Hebrew literature, you should get used to this. Hopefully you've been around this church long enough to know that this is the way the Bible works. Often in an era before kind of Microsoft Word and indented headings and italics and bold and all this kind of stuff, how do you make your big point in a piece of ancient literature? Well, one of the ways you do it is you top and tail it with a theme statement. So if a book begins with something about wisdom and it ends with something about wisdom, surprise, surprise, if the actual whole theme of it isn't wisdom, well, here we can work that logic backwards, can't we? We know the theme of Proverbs is wisdom. It begins with wisdom. So what do we think we're seeing here at the end? It's not just a role model. It's a picture of what the book is all about. And I think we need to hear that. Think back to those hopes that I asked you to consider at the start. What was it that you put your finger on when you said, what's the thing that's been driving me this week? What's the thing that I would love to happen? What's the thing that I'm really aiming for? I bet if you're anything like me, that hope that you identified was something a bit like being the wife of noble character. That if you could just be a bit more superhuman, if you could just cross that hurdle, if you could just achieve that goal, if you could just get that promotion, if you could just get those grades, everything would be okay. That idea is so magnetic to us, isn't it? And it's such a lie. That's not the reason why the wife is here in our texts. She's here to remind us what wisdom is about. The wife is wisdom. So what does that do then for the way that we read this? Well, we've spent a lot of time now thinking about who is the wife, haven't we? And come to this conclusion, she's emblematic of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. But I think the, the key to this is to ask ourselves, who is the husband? What does it look like to be the husband? What does it look like to be married to this lady from his point of view. I am, when this penny first dropped, I, I have a little pencil note here in my Bible that I just scribbled. I'll read it to you. I wrote, all of Proverbs is written to a man. The last chapter doesn't suddenly switch to a, to a female audience. 
So we're not supposed to read Proverbs 31 and say, wouldn't it be great if I did this? We're supposed to say, wouldn't it be great if I was married to this person? So think about the glimpses that we get here of the husband's life. In verses 11 and 12, we're told he has full confidence in his wife and he lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. In verse 23, we're told that he's respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. In verses 28 and 29, we're told that the children of this couple arise and call her blessed and the husband also and he praises her saying, many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. What are those snapshots of his life designed to do? Well, first, I think they reveal his identity. If you read through Proverbs from the very start, the words that I've just read to you will sound very familiar. Think about how Proverbs begins. And if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to go back and read it. Or if you're in a house church, you'll find we have some study questions that are going to pull some of these verses to the surface. But the way the book begins is not like a textbook. Like if you and I were about to try and create some best-selling book on wisdom that was going to last the centuries, I imagine we would go for something like seven steps to be a wiser you. You know, chapter one, elementary wisdom principles to learn and practice. Chapters two through six, intermediate wisdom principles to learn and practice. Chapter seven, ninja wisdom moves for the pro, for the expert, in order to totally nail wisdom in life. Okay? Sounds horribly familiar, doesn't it? But actually, that's not what we have in Proverbs. Proverbs is totally different. Proverbs is written as a story. Proverbs begins with a father talking to his son at a really important moment. He's coming of age. We've got to imagine like a 16, 17-year-old kid And the father is preparing him for life in the wide world. And he desperately wants him to embrace this path of wisdom. But as we've heard this morning, it's not an easy thing to sell, is it? Wisdom is not the easy option. Wisdom is going to yield great rewards, but it's hard. It's unappealing. It's tough sledding, I think, as we would say here in Michigan. There are many easier alternative paths. Seeking wisdom is going to be a hard slog. There will be moments of excitement and breakthrough but there's also going to be discouragement, correction, repetition. Saying yes to things that feel wrong. Saying no to things that feel right. Patience, not necessarily instant gratification. How on earth do you sell that to a 16-year-old? Well, I think here in our book, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the father has a genius idea. And I encourage this. I commend this to you fathers as a way to encourage your 16-year-olds. Uh, he, he, he thinks, how can I make this land? I'm going to liken wisdom to chasing a beautiful girl. It's a really memorable, persuasive move, isn't it? He compares this pursuit to courtship. And so he starts saying things like this, get wisdom and she will protect you, love her, and she will watch over you. Get wisdom, though she cost you All you have, cherish her and she will exalt you, embrace her and she will honor you. This is the picture of wisdom that we're being given here as this intelligent, modest, captivating young lady. And the father's trying to say, look, she's not going to be easy to get a date with. So you are going to really have to shape up to make this actually happen. But she's going to be so worth it in the end. And Proverbs is still working that picture right here at the end of the book. In the text we read today, you see the Proverbs are presented to us as the story of this young man pursuing Lady Wisdom through all of these long chapters. And in Proverbs 31, 
We find out what his life looks like if he stays the course and finally walks her down the aisle. The husband in chapter 31 is the son that we were introduced to in chapter one, all grown up. And everything the father has said to him came true. He lacks nothing of value. That's what the father said would happen. Now here it is. Wisdom is bringing him good, not harm. All the days of his life, his father's advice has totally delivered. So here's the picture. If he makes it through that moral assault cause, reduction, humiliation from chapter one all the way to chapter 31, he will get the girl. And now at the end of the book, we finally find out what it looks like. Proverbs 31 is a picture of what it looks like to enter into a lifelong monogamous commitment to lady wisdom, to be married to the wisdom of God. So I think actually, this isn't really just a chapter for the ladies. You know, newsflash to everybody, the whole Bible is for ladies. Uh, and uh, this chapter is also for the guys. So men, go ahead, read it as it's written, as the wife of noble character, and think about what would it be like to be married to this. But ladies, I think maybe read it the other way around. Read it as the husband of noble character and think what it'd be like to be blessed like this. But don't please read it as fuel for the idea that to be a real Christian, you've got to be some kind of superhuman. This passage is here to comfort us with the wonderful news that if we'll only admit how much we need her, this dream partner will marry us and help us despite our inability. We're not supposed to be the wife in this passage, we're supposed to be the husband. This is teaching us what the wisdom of God will do for us if we make enduring, lifelong covenant with it. It will provide for us. It will look out for our children. It will help us make smart decisions. It will mind our reputation. It will turn our hearts towards outsiders. It will get up while it's still dark. That's what the wisdom of God will do for you if you caught her all the way to the finish line. What a great hope in our world of transient hopes, right? I wonder how long a time span you think the book of Proverbs is written to embrace. Not maybe a question you've asked before. I think it's a full generation, isn't it? Look down at Proverbs 31 verse 28. We find that our son from chapter 1 has become a father. And he praises wisdom now to his own children, just like his father praised wisdom to him. Over a 25-year span, the wisdom of God has remained absolutely rock solid in this guy's life. Wisdom has not gone out of intellectual fashion. Actually, it never was in fashion. Wisdom delivered what it promised. And so now the son can make the same promise to his kids. And isn't that what we want for our lives too? I remember when I was at university feeling so tempted as a young Christian to kind of buy into the secular materialistic agenda around me because it just seemed so persuasive, like everybody believed it, it just seemed obviously right. And at that stage it was Richard Dawkins and you know, the whole kind of, you know, all there is is what you can see, that, that vision of the world. What is striking to me now working in university 25 years on, it's dead. In Oxford it's dead. Everybody thinks that's junk. It doesn't mean that they're queuing up to become Christians, but everyone now can see the massive intellectual overreach of that whole set of priorities. So if you signed up for that 25 years ago, if you weren't running around so busily that you could actually stop and look around you, you think, wow, where's my, like, like my life vision? Nobody seems to be buying those books anymore. It's all moved on. 
Same thing for my, my granddad, right? Tragic to watch. That by the time he realized that everything he had trusted in wasn't going to pay out, he was too old to do anything about it. Wisdom will never do that to us. Pursuing God's wisdom may be humbling, it may be countercultural, but it will still be there when every other bright idea about what makes life worth living falls. But there's one more part to this. We've given ourselves permission, I think, now to think, think a bit more flexibly about who is the husband and the wife in this story. <clears throat> Certainly with the husband, haven't we? We've been thinking through realizing uh, the, the role that he plays in the story. But now I think we need to take a leaf out of the New Testament and think flexibly about the wife. You see, this idea of marrying wisdom doesn't just reach back to the beginning of Proverbs. It also reaches forwards to the climax of the Bible story. God's people are betrothed to Jesus, and that's the ultimate destination of this passage. See, it's wonderful to think, I think, about this as kind of like uh, a lifelong commitment to some kind of abstract wisdom philosophy, to think of wisdom as some kind of path that we have to follow. It's challenging, it's humbling, it'll be worth it in the end. All of that is good stuff for us to hear. But in the Bible, wisdom isn't just an abstract philosophy. It isn't just a great something. Wisdom is a great someone. Jesus Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? 1 Corinthians. Jesus is the one the Proverbs are ultimately encouraging us to court. The love and trust and intimacy that we see pictured here in Proverbs 31, isn't it magnetic? Don't you think about the life of this husband and think, oh my goodness, if only that was me. To be looked after like that, to be provided for like that, to have that dependability at your side. Christian, that is you. That's the real love and trust and intimacy every believer finds in Christ. The wife of noble character does make a good role model, but only if we see her as a kind of beacon pointing in the direction that we should travel in, not as like the practical standard against which we should measure ourselves. As a practical standard to measure yourself against, man, she's just another source of pressure, isn't she? Just another unattainable set of expectations. But with the wife as an image of Jesus, I think all of that changes. This passage stops feeding our frantic efforts to be some kind of superwoman or superman. It lets us rest in the simple truth that as Christ's bride, the real and only superman is actually serving us. The husband, he has this amazing, unshakable solidity, doesn't he, provided by his spouse. If we're Christians, that's a picture of our lives. We can depend on that same kindness, that same far-sightedness, that same omnicompetence. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to perfectly emulate it. We can't, and God knows we can't. The Bible doesn't want us to pin our hopes on becoming some kind of diligent, make-it-happen, philanthropic, outward-focused, high-achiever. Not that any of that is bad. That's the natural direction our hopes take us, isn't it? But we're cheating ourselves of something far better and far more realistic if that's where we latch on. The Bible wants us to pin our hopes on the diligent, make it happen, philanthropic, outward focused savior who proposed to us knowing how far short of his standard we would surely fall and who died to forgive it all so that we could enjoy him for eternity. If we pin our hopes there, we will never be disappointed. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this text and grateful for this truth buried here in the structure of Proverbs uh, that it's actually an image of your wisdom that we're seeing here. That it's a picture of you, of your purity, your perfection, your power, your kindness, your concern. And we want to thank you that in the incarnation, we see that wisdom come down in human form. We want to thank you that that love, that concern, that nearness, that willingness to get up while it's still dark, that that's Jesus. Help us every morning to wake up and think, oh my goodness, he's already up. He's already praying. He's got it. He's got my family. He's got me in his hands. I may not always understand it. That's what wisdom is like. But we can know that it's God who is our husband ultimately. Help us then not to scramble, to try for some kind of perfection, to feel that that's the measure of being a godly woman or a godly man. Lord, we want to follow after you joyfully and give our all to it. Help us to be the best that we can be before you. But help us not to do it as some kind of qualification, as some kind of way in. Help us to do it out of thanks and in an effort to reflect the wonderful, wonderful saviour that you've placed in enduring covenant relationship with us. In Jesus' name, amen.